Second Samuel chapter one tonight. It's the text that we're going to be looking at. Second Samuel chapter one. The news of Saul's death has come to the ears of David, and we would expect the response by David to be one of joy. We'd expect him to promote and reward the Amalekite who claimed to have killed the man who was trying to kill David, King Saul. We'd expect there to be a huge party. Ding dong, the king is dead. Which old king? The wicked king. But instead, David breaks out into mourning. As I mentioned two weeks ago, this speaks to the fact that David is not living for himself primarily. He is concerned with seeing God's purposes come to pass. And he's concerned about God's purposes coming to pass in God's timing. That he's not going to force something that that is supposed to happen to happen before it's time. He's going to wait on God. And here we see a continuation of that idea that David's not going to, to take joy in the loss of an enemy. Instead, he's going to to grieve over the king the, the death of King Saul. And we can learn from David's loss of his friend, Jonathan, and also from the king, King Saul. The text begins in verse 17, 2 Samuel chapter 1. This is the word of God. Then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life and in their death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? Here in this lament, you see that it's good for believers Possibly we'll see this. It's good for believers to respond to the death of their leaders with sorrow and memorial. It's good for believers to respond to the death of their leaders with sorrow and memorial. Thank you. In this text, you're going to see two main things. The promotion of proper sorrow and the expression of proper sorrow. The promotion of proper sorrow is seen in verses 17 and 18. I think I might need help on all of them tonight. Sorry. Verses 17 and 18, the promotion of proper sorrow. 
we should notice at least two features of this lament. This lament is thoughtful. It's taken, he's taken time to think through it and to write it down. And he wants this to be remembered. So first, verse 17, thoughtful sorrow. As we go through this lament, we'll see that it's written in Hebrew poetry. Very similar to what you're going to find in the Psalms, the laments in the Psalm. And the nature of Hebrew poetry is that it's carefully designed. No one speaks in spontaneous poetry, right? The only time we ever use poetry in our normal speaking is when we're quoting someone else who had already taken some time to write it. But no one speaks in spontaneous poetry. So what poetry is, is it's carefully thought out sentences that are, are meant to portray some kind of an image that uses a lot of imagery. And that's what the Hebrew poetry does as well. And that's the nature of this poetry here. It's a lament. These are not spontaneous words from the lips of David where he just kind of thinks these up on the spot and says, all right, this could make a good song. David has been meditating on the loss of his friends and he works to carefully craft words that express his thoughts. Have you ever done this yourself when you've experienced loss? Have you ever sat down and wrote down your thoughts after maybe a couple weeks, maybe a couple days? You've taken time to write down what that person meant to you or what the loss of that job or you know, maybe got something stolen from you. What does it mean to me? I'm not necessarily talking about writing a poem, but, but have you ever written down your thoughts following a loss? I can tell you from experience that it is helpful to write down truth about God when you're in the midst of, of grieving, when you're still experiencing that loss. Following the loss of a loved one particularly, it's helpful to write down your thoughts and then review them later. It's a way for a person to express grief in their prayer to God because they're taking thoughts that are true about God and about their situation. They're putting them down on, on the page in many cases in raw form and, and then they can be uh, used again later to remind us of, of how God was working in us at that time. So what we have here is David having some thoughtful sorrow. Next we see in verse 18, remembered sorrow. He says, it says, And he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it's written in the book of Jeshur. Notice what David does with this carefully crafted poem, this lament that he created. He says, let's promote this. Let's make sure it spreads so that people know this song. David wants the people of Israel to learn this song with him so that they and he can be reminded of these great leaders as we'll see in, in the song and the blessings that come from them. And the point of remembering this national sorrow was so that Israel could be reminded of their grief and perhaps use it as motivation for future military campaigns, as one commentator points out. And maybe they, they would be reminded of how they had been embarrassed. How Israel had, had uh, sung this refrain that we see over and over again. How the mighty have fallen. They use this to, to, um, to gird up themselves and, and be strong in the midst of battle. At the end of verse 18, it says that this lament was recorded in the book of Jasher. This may have been a history book. Historians are not clear on what exactly this is, but it may have been a history book about Israel's battles. And so... 
this song was so important that it was recorded in that book. So the first thing we see is the promotion of proper sorrow. And then the rest of the psalm, or the, the lament, is about the expression of proper sorrow in verses 19 through 27. So first he kind of just sets it up, shows what the point of it is, that he's going to write some carefully thought out and sorrow and sorrow that's meant to be remembered. And now he's, he's going to give the actual song or the actual lament in verses 19 through 27. The first thing we see in these verses is the suppression of enemy boasting. He, he calls for, in verses 19 and 20, the suppression of enemy boasting. Notice the main chorus line at the end of verse 19. How have the mighty fallen? And then verse 25. How have the mighty fallen? Then verse 27. How have the mighty fallen? This is the point of the lament. These people who were once mighty, he's going to call one of them a gazelle. This, you had this great glory on the mountaintops. And he's also going to say that you were strong in battle. You, you, you had great life in you, and you were even together in death. But the first line, he, he really starts out the psalm before he gets into the suppression of enemy boasting in verse 20. He uses this kind of... Um, difficult to understand phrase. He says, Your beauty, O Israel, is slain in your high places. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain in your high places. The word beauty is a word that can also mean majesty or glory, as other translations have. And even some of the translations have gazelle. That, that, that the gazelle is slain on your high places. So if David is talking about a gazelle, he's saying that which seems to make sense, that there would be a gazelle hanging out in the higher mountains. And if he's saying that, then he's saying that this majestic creature, this gazelle, has died. He's slain. So who could he be talking about? Look at verse 25. I think it gives us the answer. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain in your high places. Compare that to verse 19. Your beauty, O Israel. So however we take your beauty, whether it's beauty or majesty, glory or gazelle, apparently that beauty that David's talking about at the beginning of the lament is Jonathan. Jonathan is slain on the high places. That's what the, the most, uh, the, most of his grief comes from, the death of Jonathan. He's going to spend the, the last part of the, song, the uh, lament talking about that. Apparently, David is beginning and ending his psalm with his sorrow over his friend, Jonathan. Now, David's going to lament over the loss of Saul as well, but he's going to spend most of his time on Jonathan. He's going to talk about Jonathan and Saul, the death of both of them, and he's going to spend the rest on just Jonathan alone. So, starts out with this refrain, how terrible it is that Jonathan has died and how have the mighty fallen, which very well could include Saul in that second line. But then he says, here's what I want to happen. I don't want this news to spread throughout the land of the Philistines. That's what these cities are. If you remember the Philistine cities were made up of five cities. Here's two, who are two, here are two of them. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Don't let these major cities find out about the death of Saul and Jonathan. Why? What will happen? Look at the second part of the verse. Don't let the daughters of the Philistines rejoice 
The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. David is pleading with the Philistines not to boast about their victory over Israel, over the death of Israel's leaders. And I think his concern is is not so much about losing a military battle as much as it is about the people who are outside of the covenant of God, the uncircumcised, that, that they would not be boasting about their victory over Israel's God. That's what these battles are about, ultimately. Who is more powerful? And in the eyes of the pagans, when they beat Israel, they beat Israel's God. And David says, I don't want them to think that, because that's not true. So David is sorrowful. His sorrow begins here in verse 20 with the boasting of God's enemies. And then we see in verses 21 through 24 the call for mourning. The call for mourning. And this, he focuses on both the death of Jonathan and Saul together. David calls on Israel to join him in sorrowing over the loss of these two great leaders. He says in verse 21, O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings. Mount Gilboa, if you remember from um, the end of chapter, or the end of 1 Samuel, Mount Gilboa was the location of Saul's death. And so David is speaking to the mountains effectively and saying, listen, it, it would not be fitting for you to bring dew or rain at this time. Instead, it would be fitting for you to, to, to fast, right? To, to mourn with us over the death of these great leaders. And so withhold your due as a sign of mourning. Like they would often go without eating or they would put on their sackcloth and the ashes on their head. He's saying, you, mountain, join with us in sorrowing over these leaders. And the reason that the mountain should lament is because the end of verse 21 for there the shield of the mighty was defiled. There on Mount Gilboa, the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. This shield was made of probably either wood or metal and then covered in leather. And in order to um, keep the, the leather from drying out, you have to oil it. And so he's saying, now this shield is not anointed with oil, which means that it's sitting up there on the mountain, all cracked and dried out which indicates that the person who was holding the shield is now dead. This is why you should mourn Mount Gilboa. Saul's shield is dried and cracked, which means that Saul is dead. Verse 22, Despite their death, they fought valiantly. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. There's no hint here of any hatred that David has for King Saul, is there? You know, he wasn't the best of warriors. I could have done a lot better than him. He says, no, they were valiant even in their death. Jonathan here is pictured with his weapon of choice. You know, if he had a military card or something, it would be him with his bow and his arrow. And for Saul, he was pictured with his weapon of choice, his sword. And yet both of them fought all the way till the death. And so, verse 23 David believes that the fallen should be honored for the good that they did in their life. He says in verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Isn't that amazing what David says about Saul and Jonathan? Particularly about Saul. 
They were beloved and pleasant in life. This is the man, Saul, who had hunted down David, who had spent probably years, maybe up to a decade or more, hunting David for his life like an animal. And yet David still has something good to say about him. One of the things that he praises him for and them is their familial loyalty. That is the loyalty with each other. See that in the second line of verse 23. And in their death they were not parted. They were faithful to one another. It's a great, a great picture of Jonathan's love for his father. Yes, he loved David, but, but he was loyal to his father. He did not abandon his father. He did not go out uh, as, as a fugitive with David. He stayed with his father and remained loyal to him despite his evil. And David commends him for that. David commends Saul for remaining loyal to his son. In verse 24, he calls for the people to mourn over their death. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Think of all the good things that Saul has done for you as a nation and mourn over his death. We tend to be people who broad brush people. That is, that we, we pigeonhole them into the, the one area that they uh, really messed up or maybe the thing that, that even describes them as a whole and we miss out on, on all the good things that they've actually accomplished. We can do this with our own government leaders as well. We think, we, we think that every single thing that they do is evil. When in reality you have a man like Saul, who yes, was evil in many ways, don't think he was a believer, but still could be commended in his death. In verses 25 through 27, we see the deep pain of losing a close friend. <coughs> the deep pain of losing a close friend. After lamenting over the loss of both leaders, David now considers the deeper grief that he experiences over the loss of his close friend, Jonathan. And he repeats this refrain again at the beginning of verse 25. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? Certainly the sorrow of Saul's death is not fake. I think it is real. But the grief over Jonathan's death is even deeper. And that's why he says at the end of verse 25, Jonathan is slain on your high places. Why is it that Jonathan is so? Why is it that David is so sorrowful over the loss of Jonathan? And the answer is found in verse 26. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. What was so special about him? Well, it says there in the text, you have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. David's saying here, I had a special relationship. I loved King Saul and I was loyal to him. But I have a special relationship with Jonathan. And when it says that his love is more wonderful than the love of women, he's not saying anything sexual here. He's saying something profound though. And I think he's highlighting Jonathan's loyalty. One of the key marks of a woman's love for her husband or for her children is that she is unshakably loyal. That she's the last one to abandon ship. Right? She's the one who stays loyal to the husband who perhaps even betrays her. She's the one who stays loyal to the son who, 
who walks away from the Lord. And that's part of the nature of the love of women. They're, they're loyal by, by nature, according to the way that God made them, I believe. And what David's saying is not, nothing sexual here, but he's saying, instead, do you know that kind of love, that loyalty that comes from a woman? Well, it was, it was even greater with Jonathan. He was that kind of loyal to me that he gave up what was his own, what would have been his own well-being for the sake of my benefit. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. I'll show you this. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Here, David and Jonathan are trying to verify if Saul really has a murderous hatred toward David and that he's going to kill him. So do you remember they come up with this plan? David's not going to show up for dinner. Jonathan's going to find out what Saul thinks about that. And then um, Jonathan's going to give a signal by sending out some arrows into the field and then talking to a servant boy. So here they're, they're setting up that plan. And look at verse, tw- verse 12 with me. 1 Samuel 20, verse 12. And notice, notice this unshakably, unshakable loyalty that Jonathan has, which David describes in his song as better than a woman. Verse 12, Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there's good feeling toward David, shall I not then send it to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety. In other words, if my dad plans to do harm to you, David, and I don't tell you, let the harm that he wanted to do to you happen to me. That's what he's saying. That, that's how sure you can be. He's basically making a covenant with, him, with David before the Lord. God, cause this damage to happen to me that, that, that my father wants to happen to you if I don't tell David about it. Then the end of verse 13. And may the Lord be with you, David, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Jonathan's covenant loyalty. This is not a brand new covenant that Jonathan's making here. This is a restatement of a covenant he already made in chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. This covenant compels Jonathan to not withhold information from David regarding his father's plans. And this is unprecedented because Saul is the first king of Israel. And why would Jonathan, who's next in line for the throne, promise to protect David who is a threat to his own throne. Jonathan's saying, listen, I'm next in line. So if I let David die, I didn't actually kill him. My dad did. And that puts me now in line to be the next king. You see, it would serve Jonathan's interests on a human level, on a sinful level, to allow David to die, to not tell him about the harm. Instead, what he does is saying, I'm going to protect you, and in so doing, I'm handing over my right to the kingdom over to you. See, if Jonathan were looking out 
out for himself primarily, he would let David be killed. And so Jonathan asks David in verses 14 to 17 to, ex- to renew this vow that they had made in chapter 18. Because Jonathan knows that David will be the king. So he says, when you are the king, if I remain alive, would you show, would you show favor to me and my family? But if I die, would you still show favor to my family? In other words, make a covenant with me, John, uh, David, that you'll protect my family even though my dad is gone. Typically, remember, kings in the ancient Near East and, and even in Europe throughout history would kill all the family of the previous king's family because that family of the king might be tempted to try to take the throne. And they do it by killing the newly established king. But Jonathan is saying, don't do that, David. Don't kill my family in order to protect your throne. We're not going to overthrow your throne. Instead, would you promise to protect me and my family? David agrees to do so. Turn back to 2 Samuel 1. The basis of this selfless selfless covenant that we see in 1 Samuel 20, 20 comes from a loyal love that Jonathan has for David. And really comes from a mutual loyal love that, that David and Jonathan have for each other. It was this loyal love that David and Jonathan had for one another that pierced David's heart so deeply because now he's gone. There's a concluding chorus here in verse 27. It has the same refrain. It begins with the same refrain. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? Three, three points of application here as we conclude. Number one. It is good to sorrow over the loss of leaders. It is good to sorrow over the loss of leaders. Our sorrow over the loss of leaders should include a careful meditation on their life and the contribution that they've made in light of the purposes of God. The fact that David mourns over the loss of King Saul shows us that that we also would do well to sorrow over the loss of not only believers, I think, but also unbelievers. That it is completely appropriate to eulogize them. That is, to to have a memorial of their life. To talk about the things that were done under the umbrella of God's common grace. Even if they, they were ultimately evil, like Saul was, and headed for an eternal destruction. In times like that, it's not inappropriate to remember the good things that God accomplished through them. And here's where I think we... We, we get off the rail uh, because we, we like to have things so black and white. Christian, non-Christian. And so any non-Christians that die, we can't say anything nice about them and just kind of kick the dirt on their grave. But, but at the same time, we need to, we need to keep in mind that, that, that God can accomplish some good things even through an evil father or an evil grandfather, an evil neighbor, someone who's a non-Christian. And, and there are some things that we can say that are good. This, David gives us an example of how to do that. But at the same time, we need to be careful because the other extreme is to pretend like everything's okay with them. right? Like they die and, you know, it's fine. They'll eventually make their way to heaven at this kind of universalistic type of mentality that everybody, all roads lead to heaven. 
eventually people will make their way out of purgatory into heaven. Well, the Scriptures don't allow for that kind of thinking at all. And so we need to keep life and death of an unbeliever in perspective. And so the funerals that I have conducted for unbelievers, I give time for people to say nice things about that person and to remember the good things about that person because that's part of the the legacy that that person will have is the memories, the good memories that the people had for them. But I don't spend the rest of my time as I've been I've sat in funerals where this has happened, but I don't spend the rest of my time talking about um, the assurance that everybody can have about uh, that person going to be in heaven. I don't want to give people false assurance about something that I can't see that, that was genuine. Instead, I remind them about what we all should think about in the time of death. Right? Solomon says, it's better to go to a house of mourning than it is to go to a party. And the reason for that is because it helps us to consider our end. And so, at, at times like that, everybody is kind of standing on the precipice of the next life and they're thinking about what's going to happen next. And that's a perfect opportunity for someone to take them to the Scriptures and say, it is appointed unto man once to die. We're all going to reach that next life. But the question is, how are we going to stand? Because after this is the judgment, right? So how are we going to stand in that next life? I wonder what happened to that person. How do I know that I'm going to be right with God when I get there? And we can do that without, um, without totally demonizing that person. In fact, it doesn't usually do much good to, to say, you know, this, this unbelieving loved one that we have laying here, his body's laying here, is in hell right now. Right? There, there's probably a better way to do that. And so instead, we focus on, let, let that be implied. Okay, but, but rather we focus on what, what ought to be said, and that is that you know, just like the Tower of Siloam fell on a number of people and they died, we need to recognize that unless we all repent, we too will likewise perish. So, so use that as an opportunity to, to, to point them to the Gospel. So find good things to say about them, but, but keep that in perspective overall. There's, there's a couple of extremes that we need to avoid. The one extreme is not saying anything nice about them and just completely demonizing. The other extreme is kind of making this rosy picture that's unreal, that's unrealistic. Number two, keep the death of your en- enemy in proper perspective. This kind of goes along with what I just said, but I want to expand upon it a little bit more. Keep the death of your enemy in proper perspective. I, I am just continually amazed that David does not take joy in the loss of his number one predator. I mean, even the wicked Philistines were more of an ally to David than Saul was. And yet, as we'll see from the first opposition from Saul, as we saw from the first opposition from Saul, all the way to the rise of David to the throne in the next couple of chapters, David never makes the rising to the throne his number one priority. God has already promised it to him, but that's not his number one priority. He leaves that to God. I want to see God accomplish His purposes, which in this case included Him rising to the throne. But I'm going to, <coughs> excuse me, I'm I'm going to wait on Him for His timing. 
Perhaps there's been someone standing in the way of your progress at work or in the church or in some position of power. And if getting that position is your number one priority, your idol, then you will betray friends, defy God, and leave a wake of disaster behind you. To pursue a position at all costs is to act like King Saul. That's exactly what he did. Because he had this position of power, and what he wanted most is to maintain that position and to pass it on to his own family. And in the process, he tore down the people that cared for him most. He tore down the people who were most loyal to him. And he destroyed a nation. He put them in a vulnerable position. And so instead of bulldozing our way through life in order to get what we want, we need to be like David and Jonathan to wait on the Lord and wait on His timing. This might show up at work while you're waiting on a promotion. But some other person whom you see as less qualified already has that position. In order for you to get that position, you wish something terrible will happen to them. Maybe some kind of scandal takes place in the workplace. Or, or maybe they die and the boss will have to promote you. Maybe some criminal activity. And then when that scandal or that death or that criminal activity takes place, how you respond is with celebration. Why? Because that position of power has become your God. It could also show up on a sports team. The person whose position you want has much more playing time than you do. And you're sitting on the bench. So you wish that they get injured or something so that you can get more playing time. Don't spend your life wishing for their demise. Keep things in proper perspective. Prepare yourself so that you're ready to take that spot when the door opens. But when it comes, don't boast in their failure. Keep things in perspective and wait on God. Because if you have been impatient with regard to God's timing, and if you've been bulldozing your way through life, then the first step towards loyalty to God and others is to acknowledge that you've been living for yourself. If that's the way that you tend to operate, you know what? Someone's in my way and I'm going to make it happen. You know what's amazing is a lot of times you can make it happen by bulldozing your way through life. But the first step towards loyalty to God and waiting on God is to acknowledge that you have been living for yourself. So talk to God about it. David helps us to, to, to see a bigger picture, to keep things in, the proper, in proper perspective. It's not about me. Not about my timing, what, what I desire most. Can you imagine just running from, from the king, the most powerful man in the land for, for 15 years, 10, 15 years? And yet there's no hint of David taking any pleasure in the death of Saul. Number three, give regular thought to the death of loved ones. Think the purpose of of what David is doing here is he's wanting to to take careful time to give thoughtful expression of his sorrow but then also to have this perpetuated, disseminated among the people 
so that he and they can be reminded of this loss and the pain that they felt and, and the, the, the dependence they had upon God during this time. Have you experienced the pain of loss? Well, can I just tell you that you would benefit yourself and your relationship with God if you took some time to carefully write down truth about what is going on in your heart. And the reason I say truth is because it's not just about getting your feelings out onto paper. It's about getting your feelings under the submission of God's Word and then out, out onto paper. And that takes some careful thought, doesn't it? Now, you might, be, you might be a few years removed. You might be ten years removed and you haven't really carefully thought about it. Maybe you haven't written it down. Can I just encourage you to take some time to write down your thoughts? And, and take some time to review those thoughts on occasion. And again, from personal experience, I can tell you that, that writing down truth in the midst of sorrow will serve for you as honey for your soul. And a review of that reflection is equally as beneficial. It reminds you of the, of the, the truths and the, the specific Scripture references that God brought to mind in that time of deep sorrow. And, and it will help to bolster your faith in God. Be reminded about how God carried you through. David made this poetic lament song out of his reflection. And you may or may not want to turn it into a poem or a song, but the point of the exercise is, is to direct your heart back to the Lord. I mean, consider how beneficial it was for Job to write the book of Job as he likely did. After God had restored all of his possessions and he thought back on all of the tragedy and the years of sorrow that he experienced with the loss of his family and possessions and friends, what honey for his soul it must have been for years to come as he reflected on God's goodness as he was thinking through the real truth about God and his suffering. Give regular thought to the death of the loved ones. I think that's what David's doing here. Saying, listen, I love these people and they're now gone. And I want to keep away where I can still remember that and remember God's goodness in it. So we would do well to, to follow his example. Let's pray. Father, we are thank you that, we are thankful that you are sovereign over all of our circumstances and then in the times of deep sorrow in the lowest of valleys that you are not far away Lord we have experienced your goodness in times of loss Lord we have been reminded of your truth and your overall rule in those times when it feels when it felt like everything was slipping away, when our world was crushing in around us, when, when everything was falling apart. And Lord, it, it was good for our soul to be reminded of your word, specific scriptures that came to mind, friends that reminded us about your goodness and your nearness and your care. And Lord, we're we're thankful for those reminders. Because for us it is so easy to move on from loss and, and to move on to the next thing. Maybe we get ourselves busy with other parts of life so we don't have to experience that grief again. And we don't, maybe we see it too much like a opening a wound 
or a scab. Lord, but I think there is benefit, as David has shown, to remembering the tragedy that comes from loss and the goodness that comes from your hand. You are sovereignly in control. Lord, there may be some here tonight who who have been fighting against your timing. Maybe they see someone or something or you yourself in the way of what they want. And I pray that you would just help us to see our sin for what it is. Help us to be patient. To be like the farmer who waits for the precious rain to come on his soil. Lord, in the same way, help us to be patient with your timing, knowing that your promises will come to pass. The promise of our Lord's return and final justice is true and real, and we know it's real because Jesus has confirmed it in his incarnation and his death and resurrection. So, Lord, we trust you for all of your promises, and we wait on you. Help us to do that even better this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.